Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1898, C.S. Lewis was born. Throughout the 1940s and 1950s, C.S. Lewis's popular fiction made him a household name in England and the United States, where his books sold to Christian and non-Christian audience readers alike. Not much has changed since then, except that his books have now earned him worldwide fame. Let's take a look at this man and one of his most famous books. Here's Greg Hengler. On November 22, 1963, three towering figures of the 20th century died. President John F. Kennedy was killed by a sniper's bullet in Dallas, Texas. Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World, succumbed to cancer. And in the exact hour as Kennedy's assassination, in the cloistered scholarly world of Oxford, England, the long career of Clive Staples Lewis ended due to kidney failure. He was 64 years old. C.S. Lewis's career was defined by his works in Christian apologetic writings. Apologetics meaning the discipline of defending or attempting to prove the truth of Christian doctrines through systematic argumentation and discourse. Here's Lewis scholar Dabney Hart answering the question, who was C.S. Lewis? He became the leading Christian apologist of the second half of the 20th century. And he became the author of the most important children's series of the 20th century. He was a complex man. C.S. Lewis was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland on November 29, 1898, the younger of two boys. Lewis enrolled at Oxford University, the oldest university in the English-speaking world, and referred to himself at this age as an atheist. His time at Oxford was cut short at 19 when he volunteered and was sent to the frontline trenches in northern France during World War I. Wounded from an exploding shell after one year in battle, Lewis returned to Oxford University where he graduated with honors. And it was there where he was then elected to begin his nearly 30-year tenure at Magdalen College. Here, with a pint of beer and a pipe, Lewis spent many late evenings at local pubs in philosophical discussion with friends such as J.R.R. Tolkien, Owen Barfield, Neville Coghill, and Hugo Dyson. J.R.R. Tolkien, Hugo Dyson, and other members of his late-night social group were also important for his transformation from an atheist to a theist to a Christian. From about the age of 10 until he was 33, he had been assuming that Christianity was just another myth, a beautiful lie. Here's Lewis scholars Professor Lyle Dorset and Christopher Mitchell from Wheaton College. He was the most reluctant convert in the United Kingdom. He didn't really want to be a believer, but he couldn't help himself. He was drawn to God. God kept drawing him to him. And then he read Chesterton's Everlasting Man, and at that point he began to see um, that maybe Christianity was not so intellectually in the dark as he had thought. 
and so there's this this journey but what he's doing at this point is he's really looking for reasons not to believe in the Christian faith and yet without him even trying things are coming into his life to force him to look at it and say well maybe it's not such a you know open and shut case it was also during these conversations at the pub where C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien decided to write what we now know as the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings. Here again is Christopher Mitchell. The story is told that at a point they sort of agreed that nobody was writing the kind of books that they liked to read, so they decided that they would do it. All of C.S. Lewis's 40-plus books have stayed in print since their initial publishing. In fact, sales have been increasing, with Narnia sales reaching one million annually, and his nonfiction Christian writings are not only popular, but they appeal to Christians from all denominations. Here's Lewis scholar Dabney Hart. The basis of his widespread popularity is that his Christian faith was, as he called it, mere Christianity. It was basic Christianity. It was Christianity that created a unifying element. And so Roman Catholics and Baptists and many others you know, find there um, a reinforcement. A central part of Lewis's so-called mere Christianity is what has become known as Lewis's trilemma. What do you do with a world full of people who say Jesus was a great teacher? Yet they're saying he's not who he said he was. <laughs> he's a great teacher, but he's not God. And Lewis says, well, you know, how can he be a great man and a great teacher? You know, a wonderful man, a wonderful prophet, but yet not who he says he is. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's who he says he is. This was a brave move considering the secular age Lewis was living in. After all, most of the world saw only two ways to live. You either became a Nazi and conquered the world, or you became a communist and saved it. Years before Aslan and the White Witch, in the fictional kingdom of Narnia was penned, C.S. Lewis explored the theme of good and evil in a thin volume of imaginative letters between two devils. Philosophical and diabolical, yet entertaining and easily readable by the masses, the Screwtape Letters is a satirical portrait of an elderly retired devil named Screwtape and his nephew, a young demon apprentice tempter named Wormwood. Each of the 31 letters from Screwtape were originally published each week in a church newspaper in 1941. The full collection of letters were published on February 9, 1942. The first edition of 2,000 copies were sold out even before the book was released. It would be reprinted eight more times before the end of the year and lead Lewis to being put on the cover of Time magazine with the demon screw tape standing on his left shoulder. And when we come back, more on C.S. Lewis's life story, born on this day in history in 1898. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This is 
Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue with the life of C.S. Lewis. Let's go back to Greg Hengler. He wanted to do something that would engage people, that would engage their imaginations as well as their minds. So he settled on this technique of these letters. But one of his purposes is for people to understand the battle that's going on in their own souls and in the world around them, the struggle between good and evil, to understand what the stakes are and how deep these are. The two devils are rather cunning. They're not interested in finding the one perfect moment by which the young man will turn back on his faith and his God. After all, Screwtape advises Wormwood, why use adultery when golf will do? Here's Wormwood reading a letter from his uncle Screwtape. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtip. Lewis's point was this. If we could overhear what our enemies say about us, in this case, demonic enemies, it would shock us into realization that we're really in a spiritual battle. You young tempters are so predictable. It's all show and flash with you, when in fact it's much better to keep the patient ignorant of your existence. How could we accomplish such a thing? There are many different ways. The worship of sex, some aspects of psychoanalysis, this thing some call a, a life force. They may prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshipping what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. Oh, wondrous day. The fact that devils are predominantly comic or absurdly exaggerated figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. (laughs) And persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. Right. Here's Screwtape explaining to Wormwood that the battle is not a carnal one, as humans often think, but it is spiritual. But this business of the humans being in love, is is that desirable or not? Really, Wormwood, that is the sort of question one expects them to ask. Leave them to discuss whether love or patriotism or celibacy or candles on altars or teetotalism or education are good or bad. Can't you see? There is no answer. Oh... Nothing matters at all except the tendency of a given state of mind in given circumstances to move a particular patient at a particular moment nearer to the enemy or nearer to us. Got it? Yes, Uncle. 
Temptation in Screwtape is distortion, exaggeration, and short lies that the enemy tells the believer so that he will mistrust God. And small sins will snowball into big sins. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. Brilliant. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and much more amusing. <laughs> Here's Wormwood reading a follow-up letter from his uncle Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, Obviously, you are making excellent progress. For this reason, I am almost glad to hear that he is still a churchgoer and a communicant. What? I know there are dangers in this, but anything is better than that he should realise the break he has made with the first months of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that, we do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognised sin, but only with his vague, though uneasy feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. The purpose of Lewis's Screwtape Letters was to stimulate a fascinating discourse on the sinful nature of man versus the redemptive nature of God. As Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Yet despite his lengthy and acclaimed tenure at Oxford, this humorous man of great wit and success was repeatedly denied professorship. His... Uh, popularity on sort of a lay level, his willingness to uh, to write outside the academic community, to write for the common person, and especially to write theology, to write Christianity, and to do it so boldly, and actually to attack his colleagues' positions, didn't make him popular. Despite being shunned by his colleagues in academia, Lewis was besieged by countless letters from fans in the English-speaking world and he personally responded to every single one. Considered by many, if not most, to be the greatest Christian writer in the English language, C.S. Lewis has left an unmatched legacy. Here again is Lyle Dorset, Christopher Mitchell, and Walter Hooper, literary advisor to the Lewis estate. I consider Lewis's greatest legacy being that the 30-some books he wrote in many genres, all the writing he did, that uh, many, many lives during his lifetime and continuing to this day have been utterly changed because of what he did. People, um, broken people, wounded people, people bound up in all kinds of things they wanted to be free from, have found freedom through Jesus Christ that Lewis's books pointed to. I certainly was one of those, and I am not unique. You may not at the end of the day agree with him, but Christianity is no longer this uh, sort of mindless um, believism. But there, there's a reason for accepting these things, and, uh, and you just can't write it off. And those who do, I think, um, have not really listened to him. Well, in other writers you've been finding, you've been reading 
you get a corner of the curtain is raised. You get a little bit of the truth. With Lewis, the big curtains just open up wide, they extend all the way to the side of the theatre, and you see everything that's in front of you. You see more than you've ever seen before. To see through Lewis's eyes is to see the universe almost as I think God sees it. Lewis admitted that while the writing process for the Screwtape Letters was easy, he confessed that being in the mindset of a demon had its consequences. He said, It almost smothered me before I was done. But Lewis's readers are eternally grateful. As the New Yorker stated, If wit and wisdom, style and scholarship are requisites to passage through the pearly gates, Mr. Lewis will be among the angels. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. Great job as always, Greg. And C.S. Lewis had so much to do with my becoming a Christian. In fact, it was the reason. And so many millions of us uh, later in life who read Lewis uh, came to Christianity from atheism. And the impact this man's had on civilization is remarkable. It's great to hear his story. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all of the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with her terrific and free online courses. There are over a dozen and a half of them. And my goodness, uh, get online, have your family take the courses, and the course on C.S. Lewis taught by one of the great Oxford professors, is as good as anything you'll see on almost anything. C.S. Lewis's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about all kinds of things on this show, good things, positive things mostly, but every once in a while we have to talk about hard things, and suicide, it may just be the hardest. 44,000 plus Americans take their life every year, and for every successful attempt, there are 25 people who actually try. Men, by the way, are three and a half times more likely than women to take their own lives. And men account for seven out of ten suicides. It's also the third leading cause of death for 10 to 14-year-olds. And we know this personally here on the show. My own niece, Tamara, took her life two and a half years ago. None of us saw it coming. 
When we got the call, we couldn't believe it. And you've never heard crying like it. I've never cried like it. And if I talk about it, I practically tear up thinking about it. Well, we ask our audience for stories too. And here is Jackie James's story. She's sharing her son Peyton's story. My son Peyton James was an amazing boy. He had beautiful red hair, piercing hazel eyes that changed from green to blue, and a quirky sense of humor. He loved animals, road trips, Minecraft, Legos, and chocolate ice cream. He was my angel face, and now he is my angel in heaven. He was born in 2001, nine weeks early, and he weighed just under two and a half pounds. He spent 35 days in the NICU before he was able to come home. While in the hospital, he spent three weeks on pure oxygen and was fed through a tube. What wasn't known then was that the oxygen and the liquid nutrition was causing a discoloration in the enamel of his permanent teeth, a problem we wouldn't see for several years. In second grade, the teasing began. Why don't you brush your teeth? Why are your teeth so nasty? Although his teeth were healthy, they were this mottled yellow color, kind of like the color of a popcorn kernel. He was also picked on because of his red hair, his glasses, and the fact that he was smaller than most of the other boys. He was seen as weak and became a target. As Peyton got older, he often wondered why people were so mean to him. He would ask me, Mom, why can't people just be nice? Or, Mom, what did I do to them? I never really knew how to answer those questions, so I tried to encourage him to be the nice one. I also told him all the things a parent tells a child, that he was special, that he was smart, that he was loved. But as kids grow older, the words of a parent begin to pale in comparison to the words of their peers. In November of 2013, Peyton had his first suicidal event. For years, he had been tormented by several boys at his school. Peyton started to say that his father and I would be better off without him and that he didn't want to be here anymore. At first, we thought he was just overreacting, but when the comments didn't stop, I knew he was in trouble, so I took him to the local emergency room. Sadly, ERs don't really deal with mental health issues, and we were referred to a therapist. He soon began weekly therapy and seemed to be feeling better, but this was short-lived. In the summer of 2014, I got a new teaching job in a better school district, and this meant Peyton would have to change schools. I helped him to see that this was a new beginning and that the bullies from his previous school would be a thing of the past. He was nervous but excited. As he started eighth grade at his new school, he met one boy with whom he had many interests, and they became friends. However, the teasing and the bullying continued at this school, too. Peyton was an easy target because he didn't like what other kids liked. He didn't play sports, he loved Doctor Who, YouTube, and anime, and would rather read a book than play outside. He was soon being called a loser or a geek. He was devastated. The difference was that he had stopped telling me about the bullying. A month into his new school year, Peyton told me about what was going on. He had reported an incident to the principal the day before, and the principal just told him to avoid the other boy. I asked Peyton why he hadn't told me this was going on, and he said, Mom, you can't fix this. I was devastated. After all, it was my job to fix it. As we talked on the way home, I tried to help him see that maybe it wasn't as bad as he had thought. And when we got home, Peyton went to his room, typical of a teenage boy. I thought he just needed some time alone. After about 20 minutes, I went to check on him, and that's when I found him. Peyton had hung himself from the ceiling fan in his bedroom. There was no warning, and there was no note. After a frantic call to 911 and 25 minutes of CPR by paramedics, 
Peyton was transported to the local hospital and then taken by helicopter to Dell Children's Hospital in Austin, Texas. The doctors did everything they could to stabilize him and to allow him to heal, but the injury to his brain was just too severe. On October 13, 2014, at 12.02 in the morning, my beautiful son Peyton was pronounced brain dead. At 8.30 that night, he gave his last and most profound gift by donating his organs, corneas, and skin. He saved the lives of six people, enhanced the lives of countless others. After his death, I was numb. I don't really remember a lot of the next few weeks, but I do remember a conversation I had with the mother of one of Peyton's close friends, a girl named Phoebe. She told me that Phoebe had been crying at school, and the boy who had tormented Peyton for all those years saw her crying and knew why. He came over to her and he said, I'm not surprised that boy was a freak. This was like a punch in the gut. I just couldn't understand why one person would choose to be so incredibly mean to another person. No good could come from that statement, so why would he say it? It was then that I realized that we have done our children a disservice. We've taught them about bullies and bullying behavior. We've given them detailed ideas of what bullies do and told them not to be one. What we haven't done, though, is teach them how to be nice to one another. We just assume they know. We hope that when we tell them to be nice that they know how, but often they don't. I knew I had to do something, and that's when Kindness Matters was born. I started it as a Facebook page with the intent of sharing stories of kindness and reminders to be kind to one another, even when it wasn't easy. We also started a weekly kindness challenge that gave people a kindness task to perform each week. At first, there were only a few hundred followers. Soon after, I was asked to speak at my school's No Place for Hate rally, and I shared Peyton's story. Then I started speaking at other schools, sharing Peyton's story, and using participation activities to show kids the real power of their words and the power of kindness. To date, we have given presentations in 41 schools across Texas, and our Facebook family has grown to over 29,000. We also have Kindness Matters t-shirts and wristbands, which we have sent to all 50 states and nine countries, using the proceeds to start a scholarship. Peyton wanted to be a veterinarian when he grew up, so we started a scholarship in his name at the Texas A&M University School of Veterinarian Medicine. We hope to fulfill the $25,000 endowment of the scholarship fund so that the Peyton A. James Memorial Scholarship will be a permanent addition to the Texas A&M Foundation. It is my deepest hope that we can change the culture of our society and leave all the negativity and name-calling behind. Creating a culture of kindness has to start with one person, so why not with me or you? For more information about Kindness Matters or to follow us on social media, please head over to www.kindness-matters.org. And thank you for that, Jackie. And thank you for honoring your son. That vet scholarship that you're saving up for. All that touring around Texas and the schools. Mom, you can't fix this. I just keep hearing that in my head. Imagine having a kid tell you that. Mom, you can't fix this. And by the way, this is what we do when tragedy strikes. We try and do something positive and turn something just terribly ugly and tragic into something beautiful. That his body was donated... His body saved the lives of six people. 
I think that's got to mean a lot to Jackie and her family. This is something she'll live with the rest of her life. The grief will never go. But my goodness, what Americans do, what we all do under these circumstances is remarkable. Again, call us, email us, ouramericannetwork.org. Your stories, we'll bring them on the air. We get out of the way. Jackie James' story, her son Peyton's story. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time to hear the story of one of the more unusual figures in American history. While you seldom hear his name nowadays, he was a big deal during the late 60s and early 70s. Here's Jesse with the story of Tiny Tim. I first saw Tiny Tim on television while growing up in the 80s. Captured my attention right away. What the heck was I watching? A grown man playing the ukulele, singing like a cartoon character, with a terrifying physical appearance and strange demeanor. Think Marilyn Manson meets Jackie Mason. I'm not trying to be mean, just descriptive. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Now, hearing this music today, someone who isn't familiar with Tiny Tim might think that this was all just one big joke. But Tiny Tim wasn't a joke. Most people thought of him as a novelty comedy act. But the thing is, Tiny Tim wasn't really an act. Now, here's the speaking voice of Tiny Tim. You're going to notice a bit of a difference from his singing voice. Melody, in my opinion, is 99% of all songs. Words are just 1%. A great melody is what really counts, whether it's today or 50 years ago, any of the Beatles songs. You know, the Beatles had one thing in common with Irving Berlin and all the other writers like the Gershwins. They knew how they had a great knack of, of what hit songs sounded like. You take mostly any of their songs, from Norwegian Wood to uh, I Saw Her Standing There to uh, Love Me Do, every one of these songs can be remembered. They just had a knack of writing hit songs. In April of 1932, he was born Herbert Buckingham Carey in Manhattan. His mother, a Polish Jew. His father, a Lebanese Catholic. Tiny Tim displayed musical talent at a very young age. At five years old, his father gave him a vintage wind-up gramophone and a 78 RPM record of Beautiful Ohio by Henry Burke. Long, long ago, someone I know Tiny Tim would sit for hours listening to this record. At the age of six, he began teaching himself to play guitar. 
By his preteen years, he developed a passion for records, specifically those from the 1900s through the 1930s. He began spending most of his free time at the New York Public Library reading about the history of the phonograph industry and its first recording artists. He would research sheet music, often making copies to take home to learn, a hobby he continued for his entire life. The New York Public Library at Lincoln Center, I don't know if any one of your listeners know this, Mr. Bailey, but they have over 7 million songs and with the original sheet music co- uh, you know, cover going back to the 1800s in large bound volumes. Mm-hmm. Some of them are microfilm now, and they can be, they can be Xerox only with the publisher's permission uh, after 1905. Mm-hmm. But before 1905, you can Xerox them. Uh, and I found, just looking through the history of this country as well as the hit songs at that time, which is simply amazing. And here's a song. Thanks, I picked... Thank you, Mr. Bailey. I, tell you, I picked the song up last year in the library. The sheet music was faded and torn, and I was just fortunate to be able to Xerox this mm-hmm. because it was 1905, and they don't let you do anything after that year mm-hmm. unless you get the publisher's permission. But here's a song that um, was written at the time the subways were first being built in Chicago and in New York, the first underground subways. I hope the boys are. old, Tiny Tim began learning how to play the violin and the mandolin, soon moving on to what would be considered his signature instrument, the ukulele. After dropping out of high school, he worked a series of menial jobs before he discovered his ability to sing in an upper register. There's something of a new revelation. I never knew that I had a higher top register. And one day I heard Rudy Valley sing, and uh, I said, gee, look how high he hits those notes. I consider this a gift of the Lord, uh, an undisclosed gift. By the early 1950s, he had landed a job as a messenger at the New York office of MGM Studios, where he became ever more fascinated with the entertainment industry. Tiny Tim started by performing at dance club amateur nights under different names such as Texarkana Tex, Judas K. Foxglove, Vernon Castle, and Emmett Swink. out from the crowd of performers, Tiny Tim would wear crazy outfits. And after seeing an old poster of a long-haired Rudolph Valentino, Tiny Tim grew his own hair out to shoulder length and wore pasty white facial makeup. His mother didn't understand his change in appearance and was intending to take her son, now in his 20s, to see a psychiatrist at Bellevue Hospital until his father stepped in. You see, back in the day, if your mom took you to Bellevue, you were pretty much certified crazy. She left me with the herpes. Now, why did she do that? 
Last night I sat upon a chair and gave it to the cat. The cat gave it to Rover and to the mousy too. The mousy gave it to the bird. I don't know what to do. Thank God his dad intervened. By 1968, his first album, God Bless Tiny Tim, was released. It contained an orchestrated version of Tiptoe Through the Tulips, which became a hit after being released as a single. Now, for most of the album, Tiny Tim sings in his unusual falsetto style. However, on a number of songs like this hilarious rendition of Sonny and Cher's I Got You, Babe, he sings both baritone and falsetto, alternating between the two. Because you've all been so sweet, another duet for you. They say we're young and we don't know Won't find out until we grow Well, I don't know, I guess it's true Cause you got me and baby, I got you Funny thing is, he almost sounds just like Cher I got you, babe I got you, babe Just a year later, in 1969, Tiny Tim was now a household name on three continents when he appeared with Bing Crosby on live television from the Hollywood Palace. We'll have a little game here. I'll sing a bit of a song, and you tell me uh, what picture it was from, and then you have to sing another song from the same picture. Now, sit down. This will take a little thought. You ready? Thanks, Mr. Bing. That'd be great. I'll sing a song. You tell me what picture, and then you sing a song the same. Down the old ox road, though you'll never know where it is by looking at maps. Oh, gee, that's easy. What's that? That's, the year was 1933. True. The picture was College Humor. Right. And from that picture, you also sang, Learn to croon. You'll eliminate each rival soon. If you're heading for a sunny honeymoon, Learn to croon. Well, you could throw a Labrador through that that vibrato of yours. (laughs) Tiny Tim was now just about as famous as you can get. That same year, he married his third wife, Vicky, on the set of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in front of 40 million viewers. Here's stage magician and comedian Penn Jillette on why Tiny Tim matters to him. Tiny Tim matters to me because he is the antithesis of all that is cynical in the uh, American culture. There was this time... You know, this time in the late 60s when all of America decided to embrace, whether with a wink or whether without a wink, someone who was truly different, who was truly eccentric. And all the people that have reason to be cynical, um, Lenny Bruce, Frank Sinatra, Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Johnny Carson, Bing Crosby, Howard Stern, um, they all melted in front of Tiny Tim. Bob Dylan uh, seemed to think he was the only real person that uh, Bob Dylan ever met. Bob Dylan met a lot of people. On September 28, 1996, Tiny Tim suffered a heart attack just as he began singing at a ukulele festival in Montauk, Massachusetts. He was hospitalized for three weeks before being discharged and told never to play again on stage. Tiny Tim ignored the advice. On November 30th of 1996, he was playing at a gala benefit hosted by the Women's Club of Minneapolis. While performing his last number of the evening, he suffered another heart attack on stage in the middle of a rendition of his hit, Tiptoe Through the Tulips. When he collapsed and never regained consciousness, Tiny Tim was pronounced dead nearly an hour later. And that is the story of Tiny Tim. 
never hit your grandma with a shovel It makes a bad impression on her mind One of a kind, unabashedly himself Strange, American This is Our American Story All I want is 50 million dollars and great job on that, Jesse. And if you can, go to YouTube, Google Tiny Tim and Johnny Carson, and you'll understand what Penn Gillette was saying. Tiny Tim's story here on Our American Stories. And we're living in the mansion of gold. If I only owned the Pennsylvania stories where we love to tell great stories about music, sports, art, love, death, business, and sometimes public policy when the public policy hits the pavement and affects you, the listener. And one of the groups we love to hear from the most is the Goldwater Institute. They brought us the story on Right to Try, a movement they inspired to give dying patients a right to try experimental drugs that could save their lives. Check it out at OurAmericanNetwork.org. They also brought us the story of Dr. Carol Landrum, the 88-year-old doctor in rural Mississippi who traveled to patients who otherwise wouldn't have had a doctor anywhere nearby and how his own state government tried to take away his medical license because he didn't work in a traditional office. These folks at the Goldwater Institute fight full-time on behalf of the least vulnerable in society and never at a cost to them. But this isn't just work for the folks over there. It carries over in some cases and hopefully in most to their personal lives. And that's what we're going to explore today with their president and mother of three adopted children, Darcy Olson. And we're celebrating, of course, all month long National Adoption Month. Darcy, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for all the work you do and for collaborating with us. And we look forward to doing many, many more stories about the important work you're doing. But I'd like to start here with uh, an earlier moment in your life when you were a drug counselor, of all things, Darcy. How did you get into that line of work? What was it like? And were there any moments from that that meant as much to you as anything else in your life, looking back in retrospect on that experience? Well, so I was a drug counselor in a transitional house for for veterans who had uh, who had served the country, most of them in Vietnam, and they had gone through a 30-day drug rehabilitation, and they were living in homes trying to um, trying to get the good habits back in life and find jobs and connect reconnect with their families and so forth. And I I was very blessed to have that job. I was a student at Georgetown and I needed to work to help uh, pay for that. And, um, you know, I applied for it. And I remember uh, the interviewer saying, because I am Caucasian and most of the clients were not. And one of the questions that she asked was, you know, how are you going to relate to these people who don't look anything like you and they're all men and they're all older? And I said, 
Well, um, we're all people. And um, the problem of drug use, reconnecting with family, getting a job, um, needing to um, needing to find our spiritual, our best spiritual life is, you know, that is not, we're not bound by color, by age, or any other limits. And I said, we all have that in common. And I said, we're just going to connect as people. And sure enough, I went in there and I looked a little bit different and there was a little bit of skepticism. But at the end of the day, um, I made some wonderful friends and I think um, I learned a lot from these from these men. And one of the things that I learned is that the rain falls on us all. A lot of people think that uh, drug use or alcohol use, um, these abuses, and you, you know, must be they, may, they must have had bad parents, or maybe they weren't well educated. Um, one of the men I remember most fondly was a graduate of Harvard University, and that was a very humbling life lesson to look around and never take for granted where you are in life, and to know that challenges will come, and. Um, you know, we all need to hold hands and help each other through these things, not pass judgment, but just be there for family, for friends and strangers who are going through these life challenges of mortality. Yeah. And to offer them unconditional love, because you're right, the rain falls on us all. And sooner or later, something's going to come down the pike in your family or your immediate friends. There's, it is inevitable, Darcy. It's inevitable. D- definitely. And I think that is where we can all connect, you know, when your heart is open, people feel that. And, I, you know, I felt that, and I think that they felt that. And uh, I, you know, I would just, I've been um, lucky that, you know, I, you said, how did you get into that? And I just, I have always had a heart for justice. When I was a, um, little, I think the first time I made a petition to petition the government for a change in, the poli- in policy, I was... Um, about 10 years old, and I was very upset at the clubbing of seals. Um, and so I made my own little petition for Greenpeace, and I walked it around the neighborhood, and I had people sign it. And my views on certain things obviously have evolved since I was 10 or 11, but, but I think that that sense of justice, uh, the, the, the ability to look at the world and say there, there is a better way, uh, that, is, that is what has driven me in my work at the Cato Institute, now my work at the Goldwater Institute, and in my personal life, too. And we're talking to Darcy Olson, the CEO of the Goldwater Institute. And just a minute or so here, and we're going to get into it in much more depth in the next segment. But talk to us about what inspired you as a busy CEO to, and, and, a, single, and a single person to start to adopt children. What triggered you? Was, it, was there a sense of justice? Did justice prevail in this space on some level, Darcy? Definitely the sense of justice. And it, you know what's funny about some of these decisions, and I think listeners can relate to this, sometimes once you've made a decision, you think, "Why? what took me so long to get here? This makes the most sense. This is the best thing I've ever done. And I, I felt inspired to become a foster parent uh, through a few different things, including prayer. And um, when I felt that inspiration, I... I thought, this is wonderful because I am single and I hadn't met the right person yet. And I thought, well, this this is wonderful. This is how I'll be able to be a mother. Maybe it won't be the way that I thought it would be, but if it if it serves a higher purpose, and then, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll go with that. This is wonderful. And so 
I went in um, it, literally the next day uh, to start getting trained, and I, I talked to one of the women, and I told her about the place I was living in. And it turns out that my spare bedroom didn't meet regulations because, you know, all about government regulations. Yep. It didn't have the right size window or whatever. And she said, but you could, you could take a child under three and have them in your room with you, in your bedroom. And I said, oh, my goodness, children under three, don't you have any two-parent families who can take the babies? Because that, you know, that's ideal. And what she said was, we have babies overnight in office buildings and shelters. So if you could open a crib, we would be so grateful. And you can hear it in my voice. I mean, my my heart just fell. And I said, I will absolutely open a crib. You betcha. You'll do it right away. In fact, I got one ready right now. I'll get it together. I'll go to Costco and I'll have it slapped together in an hour. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Darcy Olson, CEO of the Goldwater Institute. We're not talking public policy here. We're talking about something even more important, adoption and love. More after these messages. This is Our American Story, and we continue our conversation with Darcy Olson, the CEO of the Goldwater Institute and the adoptive mother of three beautiful children. And let's pick up where we left off, and let's take that first child. First of all, were you terrified, excited, both? What did your, fr- <laughs> what did your friends think? What did your family think? And when that child came home for the first time, Darcy, what were the thoughts that came to you? Oh my goodness. I was um, a little bit terrified, but mostly I was just so excited. I thought, well, this is great. I mean, I, you know, this is exciting. This is wonderful. So uh, everyone thought I was crazy. I mean, if you, if you, except I have a few people in my life who, um, who understand inspiration, they understand prayer and they understand service. Most people just thought, how are, you know, they thought about the logistics. How are you going to do this? You're single, you're running the Goldwater Institute. And, and I've always believed that if you do what's right, um, God makes the edges just a little bit softer, and he helps that pass. And I believe that, and I believe it to this day, that it has been much easier for me as a single parent um, than, than it should be because, because those blessings come. Um, but my very, first, my very first one, so the day after I was licensed, I got the phone call for her, and they said, we have a little boy who is in the hospital. Can you go pick him up? And I said, sure, and I arrive, and it's a little girl. And, you know, that's how the bureaucracy is, right? They can't even keep track of these poor kids in the system. (laughs) And there's this tiny little girl, and so precious. And the nurse there said, "Uh, this is one of the sweetest babies we've ever had come through here. And she said, go ahead, pick her up, change her, and we'll roll you out of here, and you'll love this government regulation. They made me sit in a wheelchair and hold the baby to leave the hospital. And the woman pushing me was, of course, much older than I was. And I just said, this is crazy. Can I please just walk out of here? I'm taking your time. And she said, it's a regulation that when you leave with a new baby, you have to leave in a wheelchair. <laughs> so just an aside, very funny, all these regulations that pop up. But um, I ended up, uh, it ended up that that, that, um, that beautiful, beautiful little girl did not have uh, any family capable of taking care of her. And she became my first daughter. And about the time she was turning one, I felt the feeling that I should open up another crib. And, of course, then people thought I was just absolutely crazy. Was I going to have two in diapers, and how is this possible? And I said, it will work out. And I opened the door, 
And this beautiful little baby came in, and within a week or two, I knew that she was going to go to an aunt, and it would be a real fostering situation. So we just loved her, took care of her. But a couple months into taking care of her, one of the people involved in her case came to me in the monthly meeting that we have and said, just out of the blue, as so many of these things happen, and said, I have a little baby boy on my docket who will be going up for adoption, and I'd really like him to be part of your family. Would you consider it? And let me tell you, I I got chills, but I said the same thing I said the first time I met the first regulator. Don't you have any two-parent families who can do this job better? And she said to me, I've interviewed a lot of two-parent families, but I know the future that he'll have with you, and I want him in your home. So that became my son. So I basically ended up with, with a set of twins at that point in time. And um, all of the ladies at church helped. I, I remember when we had to move into a, bigger, into a bigger house that it was like an Amish barn raising. Uh, all of the church ladies and all of the husbands were there at 6 o'clock in the morning. And by noon, they had packed and unpacked and moved us into a new home and even had the cribs and beds made for the babies in six hours. That's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And, and, I, and again, you couldn't have planned for this. You couldn't have thought it out. Um, this is where your, your prayer life and, and deep connections to family, faith, and church, uh, well, they take, take the role of government away. I mean, this is one of the arguments we have in the public square regularly, Darcy. I mean, these, these powers of individuals working together to do great things are always better than a, than a faceless bureaucracy. Yes, and it, it reminds me of, I go back to Hillary Clinton's book, and it was well-intentioned, her, her idea of it takes a village, and I know where the proverb comes from, that everybody needs to love children and so forth. Uh, but that can be taken in the wrong direction because th- what it really boils down to is it takes a mom. It takes a family. Um, it's not about the amount of money a child has. It's not about social services. The thing that a child needs most in this world is a family to love, um, somewhere to go back to after they go to college, somewhere to call home, people to care for them, teach them, um, correct them, give them friends, family, teach them about uh, faith, service devotion, duty, commitment, all of those things. And none of those things can be as well done through a program as they can through a family setting. Even, I would go so far as to say, an imperfect setup. Mine is not perfect. Um, obviously, we're, we're still in search of a father. I, I was always joking about that. Um, fortunately, I have a wonderful brother-in-law who stands in quite a bit for them. But, uh, but it's still a family, and it's full of love, and it's full of faith and confidence in the future. And that is what these children need. So there are so many families out there I know who are listening. There are people who have struggled with trying to have a biological child. There are people who have looked at adoption and thought they can't afford it. And I would just like to say that being a foster parent, even if it's temporary, and sometimes it is temporary, it's not always an adoption, you are still a parent. You're still providing that love, and you're still, in my in my mind, um, still doing the Lord's work. And I hope that people you have open hearts to that and, and know about that. I, I wish I had known about fostering 10 years earlier because instead of, you know, now I'm on my, taking my sixth in, but, you know, I probably would have had 16 over time. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing, and it's, it provides the possibility for everyone to have a family. And I think that this is the longing of everyone is to have a family, and more importantly, to give love and receive love. And the best way to receive love, of course, is to give it 
How has being a foster mom and now an adoptive mother changed you, Darcy, as a person? Uh, it's it's changed everything. Um, I think I think. Uh, you know, when people always say when you become a parent, every time you read a news story about someone who gets hurt um, or they're suffering, you immediately think of your own child. And it, it opens your heart in a, in a, in a new way. It's, I, I can't really describe it except to say that I pass a lot, a lot less judgment on other people and I have a, a bigger heart for love. I think I mean, I still have a long way to go, but I feel like it refines you to be the best you can be. I mean, if you're, if you, if you're not patient and you have three under two, which I did at one point, you learn patience very quickly yep. and that, that patience will translate into, into all kinds of situations. So I think anybody who's been a parent or if you've been in a close relationship, even a close friendship or a marriage, those relationships improve you greatly and you become your higher and better self. So I, I love that. And I'm so, so grateful for the way that, um, for the things that I've learned and, and of course the way your, your children eventually come, come to teach you. You bet. And talk to us about time management. How do you do it? And tell us the fascinating thing you told your employees to make sure you were being fair to them with these new needs that you had and these new demands on your, on your personal life. Um, I, I, I'm not sure what you're referring to. Maybe a while back, is it when I told, it was when I told my team, if you ever feel like I'm not doing this job, you know, please tell me or just tell someone on the board and I will change my work. Yep. That's the one where you, you said, look, I'll take a lower paying position. If you all think this is hindering my ability to perform as CEO and I want to, and and you, I think you made this earnestly and honestly. Oh, I did. And I, and repeatedly, I mean, I repeatedly (laughs) said that and I, and I meant it. Um, you, you ha- so the key when you're talking about time management, you have to know your priorities. And I know the very most important job I have is, is being a mother to these children. And it is not to give short second shrift to the Goldwater Institute. I love this work. It's a calling, and I'll be doing it if, if I'm lucky for the rest of my life. But you have to know that. And so I did say, if ever you think this, that we are compromised in any way because of my devotion to family, I can do something different. But what I can't do is be less of a mother to these children. And, you know, it's, as I said, I think, um, I think Providence helps us when we make those right decisions. And sure enough, in the past five years when I've been taking in all of these children, we have had uh, unparalleled growth over these years. And, you know, we now, uh, we're now litigating and working all across country, which we weren't doing. So, um, you know, I've slept a little bit less. Uh, I've <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you burn the midnight oil for a few years, but it reminds me a little bit of going to college and working. And I'm not afraid of a little bit of hard work for the right thing. So, you know, buckle down, don't complain, and keep your, keep your priorities straight, and all will be well. Well, you know, a friend of mine last night who just adopted four kids uh, at a time because his brother died in a tragic plane crash said, you know, I sleep a lot less, but I live a lot better. And uh, I couldn't think of a better way and a better toast to have. And, Darcy, thanks for what you do at Goldwater. And thanks for doing what you've done for these children. Darcy Olson, CEO of the Goldwater Institute. It's National Adoption Month. And we're celebrating adoption stories all over this great country. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we like telling the stories about all kinds of people, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the bizarre. Which brings us to our supreme executive producer and chief proprietor of strategic irrelevance and irreverence, Jesse Edwards, with a story that is sure to tantalize all of your senses about an old-school hacker. Take it away. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial again. This is the story of a guy known as Captain Crunch. His real name is John Draper. He's legendary in the world of computer programming and hacking. The son of an Air Force engineer who himself joined in 1964. While stationed in Alaska, he helped his fellow servicemen make free phone calls home by devising access to a local telephone switchboard. If you'd like to make a call, please hang up and try again. Now, in case there are any young people listening, back before we all had smartphones, we used landlines. Or phones that were attached to the wall by wiring. If you need help, hang up and then dial your operator. And you even had to pay more money to make long-distance calls, God forbid. After the Air Force, John Draper was trying to test the signal strength of one of his own pirate radio stations when he broadcast the phone number for listeners to call in to report the strength of his signal. Well, he got a response from a group of blind kids who told him about a special whistle that could be found inside boxes of Cap'n Crunch breakfast cereal. Here's John Draper. Well, my claim to fame is... Comes out of a Captain Crunch whistle box. If you hold up one of the holes like this and blow it, that's 2600 hertz tone. That 2600 hertz tone is what controls the AT&T American telephone system. And it was developed way back in the 50s. Got started from this, really. And I learned about the phone company system and the switching tones, and I got a Captain Crunch whistle from one of the kids. So what kind of mysterious power did this little whistle have over the national phone system? John Draper gives us a basic demonstration. With this, you want to dial a number, you call up a a, a 555-1212 information number, which is free, and and then you blow it like this. And that just basically is the same thing as hanging up. You're hanging up on a trunk level, and you go a little ka-chink sound, and then if you want to dial two, you go one three, and you dial a number. And that was basically how you make free phone calls. That's pretty impressive. In the time when you had to pay for phone calls, this guy figured out a way to hack the system with a whistle that came out of a Captain Crunch box. So next, Draper created the Blue Box, an electronic device that would recreate tones similar to this whistle. So I built a prototype of a Blue Box at home. I couldn't believe it. It worked. My parents thought I'd gone stark raving mad. And you can do just about anything with a blue box you can do as an operator. You can call other operators, you can call routing codes, you can tap phone lines, you can route calls all over the world by you just knowing what the routing codes are. And you can stack tandems. So once a long distance call had been initiated and the phone company heard the 2600 hertz tone, it terminated the call, but only at one end. Now the person at the open end of the line with the special whistle, or the blue box, had all the power of the telephone company operator. They could call anywhere free of charge in the world, or they could tie up phone lines of an entire city by stacking the lines. Here's a demonstration. 
The number that's ringing at this point doesn't matter. What's important is that this call has gone over a trunk from New York to a distant 4A, which can be reset by 2600. That's the supervision handshake, off-hook, on-hook. And now it's waiting for new digits, which Ben will supply. That's the sound of Youngstown, Ohio, dumping us into a trunk to Canton. And that's the handshake from Canton. Now we're in Youngstown again, which... stacks into Canton, and then Canton... gives us the handshake. While the implications of this now ancient technology might be lost on some of us now, back then it caught the attention of Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. What happened basically at this point, um, the blind kids got a hold of somebody from Esquire magazine article. There was actually this guy Don Ballinger who got busted using blue boxes and uh, got real bitter toward the phone company and wanted to blow the whistle on the phone company and let everybody know about it. And uh, the phone freaks found out about it and they contacted Don Ballinger, which is a bad mistake, and they told him about me. And then they wrote this Esquire magazine article called The Secrets of the Little Blue Box, October 1971 issue. And uh, Steve Wozniak got a hold of the magazine and uh, showed it to Jobs. And Steve says, let's build them and make them and sell them. <laughs> so that's what they did. In fact, Steve Jobs' first job, or at least his first business, was selling blue boxes, the device that allowed users to get free phone service illegally. Not only that, but you could hack communication centers all over the world with the technology. Here's Steve Jobs. You could, you know, call from a, a payphone, uh, go to White Plains, New York, take a satellite to Europe, take a cable to Turkey, uh, come back to Los Angeles, uh, and you go around the world three or four times and call the payphone next door and shout in the phone, and be about 30 seconds and come out the other end of the, the other phone. So we actually, and these were illegal, I, I have to add, uh, but in spite of that, we were so fascinated by them that Waz and I actually figured out how to build one. We built the best one in the world. It was the first digital blue box in the world. And uh, we would uh, give them to our friends and use them ourselves. And You know, you, you rapidly run out of people you want to call. But it was, the, it was the magic of the fact that two teenagers could build this box for $100 worth of parts and control hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure in the entire telephone network in the whole world. But it seems like all fun and illegal things like this eventually come to an end. John Draper, Captain Crunch, got busted. I got busted because somebody was using Waz's blue box, the phone company detected it, and the person had my phone number and abused my privilege and wrote my phone number down and that was how I got busted. Otherwise, I would have been pretty, pretty safe even today because I was very careful. Captain Crunch ended up serving two prison sentences for phone fraud. While serving a third prison sentence, Draper set to creating the Easy Rider, the first word processor for the Apple II. While out on work release, he had access to a computer in a small studio, though sometimes he needed to take copies of his work home to prison so he could continue working on it. We're sorry. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial again. But the phone hacking mischief didn't end there for our old friend John Draper here. After prison, he made a fascinating discovery while scanning 800 numbers. Maybe two or three years later, and uh, discovered a very interesting phone number 
Uh, it was an 800 number that uh, later I discovered it to be the White House CIA crisis hotline number. <laughs> and uh, there was a way to tap lines back then, so we'd sit in on the line and listen to it for a while, and it was on an unencrypted link. And uh, somebody said, Olympus, please. And the voice on the other end sounded remarkably like Nixon. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I wrote down Olympus. And two weeks later, I went to a party and somebody wanted me to trade. Uh, somebody had this really cool number. I wanted it. And phone freaks like to trade numbers. So I said, uh, I'll trade you a number. Would you like to have the, the CIA crisis hotline of the White House? And he says, you got what? <laughs> so I gave him the number. But before I even had a chance to give him the number, he'd already stacked two or three, ten, two or three trunks in there calling the number. And he got, uh, got him on the line and uh, he said, uh, Sir, we have a national crisis on our hands here. And he says, What's the nature of the crisis? He says, Sir, we're out of toilet paper. <laughs> they hung up. First instance of punking uh, the president. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial again. And that's phone freaking extraordinaire, the one and only Captain Crunch, John Draper. This is Our American Stories. And thank you as always, Jesse. As odd and irreverent as always, John Draper's story, Captain Crunch's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we like to drop in on some of America's favorite TV shows every week. And one of them is Shark Tank, and we all love the show, too. And this is where inventors of all sorts, pitchers of all sort, and I mean pitchers pitching their product, their wares, their ideas, pitch to a panel of self-made multimillionaires and even billionaires who were called the Sharks. And they're looking for capital and, more importantly, the experience of the people who made all that money. And if any of the sharks want in, well, that's when the real fun begins. We knew this would be an interesting episode when Rebecca walked onto the stage with a cardboard toilet and a cat litter box. Hi, I'm Rebecca Riscotti, founder of City Kitty. City Kitty is seeking $100,000 for 15% equity in our company. For the 200 million cat owners around the world, cleaning a litter box is a chore that we all dread. Litter boxes are germ breeding grounds. Kitty litter gets tracked everywhere. They stink up our homes. They cost lots of money to continually fill. And they cause fights in otherwise peaceful households because nobody wants to clean this thing. It's disgusting. And cat owners don't know there's any option. But there is. You can toilet train your cat with City Kitty. Take a look here. <laughs> <laughs> and what the sharks are laughing at is a video of Rebecca's black and white cat perched on the side of a regular toilet seat, relieving herself into the water bowl. Then Rebecca got right back to her pitch. With City Kitty, the dirty litter box is gone. Your home is cleaner. You're saving money. You're doing good for the environment. 
and life at home is better for you and your cat. Can you get it any age? If it's an old cat, doesn't want to learn new old tricks? Old cats can learn new tricks. My cat was 11 when I toilet trained her. I did some research, how do you toilet train a cat? And in a matter of weeks, Samantha was using the toilet. The litter box was gone. We were saving money. It works. Okay, walk me through how you train Samantha. You said, Samantha, you can't poop in the litter anymore. Okay, so the reason a cat uses a litter box is because it is the option we give them to cover the, the smell or the scent of their waste from predators. To avoid being torn to shreds by a larger animal. Exactly. So when you toilet train them, when you get to the point where your cat is actually perching and they're going to the bathroom in the water of the toilet, that's when they realize that the water of the toilet covers the scent better than kitty litter. And it's just a gradual transition from litter box to toilet. You take the city kitty training seat that you see there, you put it on your toilet, and you fill it with a small amount of kitty litter. You need a special seat? That's what City Kitty is. So this is your regular toilet. You lift it up, take it off. After one week, you remove the first ring from the training seat that's in its center. It will make a small hole in the training seat. It's about that big. Your cat will continue to go to the bathroom in the litter of the training seat. The same thing at ring two, you're making the hole larger. And at the third ring, that's when they'll start aiming in the water of the toilet, and that's when the cat realizes the water of the toilet covers the scent of the waste better than kitty litter. What if I have to go to the toilet after the kitty? Just lift the toilet seat up, take it off, and set it aside, and then you put it back on during the training. That's only for a few weeks. During the training, do they miss the seat at times? I'm not sure I'd share my toilet with my cat. Well, you're so selfish, by the way. No, no, I just wonder if they are accurate. They're very accurate. People say, oh, I don't want to share my toilet seat with my cat. That's not a problem. Oh, that's disgusting. No, what's disgusting is having your cat use a litter box. Let's not forget, this is a box of poop. And your cat is going to the bathroom in there, and then they're walking in your house. They're walking on your sofa, your kitchen counter. This is so crazy. Okay, if you don't have cats, you don't understand. You know, the sharks are still laughing, but they're also seeing business potential. Damon John and then Kevin Harrington began to ask more serious question. Now, is there any liability if somebody's cat drowns? <laughs> liability, Damon? Yeah, if somebody's cats cat don't cat like drowns, to drown. They hopping up on the toilet oh. and falls in his bed. You just get a new cat. They're 15 yeah, bucks. I, I got it. I got it. <laughs> That's horrible. Oh. <laughs> I have to say that. Does the cat ever fall in? No, it doesn't happen. Rebecca, what does it sell for and what's it cost to make this product? The retail is $29.99. Each cost per unit is $4.76. I manufacture in quantities of 10000 How many of these have you sold actually? I have sold 40,000 of these off my website alone. This year I'm doing $350,000 in sales. Last year I did $225,000. I have sold $1.4 million in cat toilet training kits and I have never advertised. I've been on Good Morning America, CNN. I've been in the Wall Street Journal. People love talking about it. It's got broad appeal. How much money have you put up so far? Initially, I invested $20,000, but CityKitty is a constant investment. So I'm constantly putting money back in the company while remaining profitable. So what would you use the money for? I would use the money to hire, um, to get sales reps for CityKitty and also do marketing. I want to take CityKitty to the next level. I believe this is a multi-million dollar product. And that got everyone's attention, those numbers. $220,000 last year, $350,000 this year, and $1.4 million with no advertising. Now it's time to see who's in and who's out, starting with Robert, then Mr. Wonderful, and then Kevin Harrington. Well, Rebecca, I'll tell you where I'm at. It's just not a business I have uh, any interest in or can add value. And I don't have a cat. I have a dog. 
Suana. Appreciate that. Thank you. Rebecca, I hate cats. Hate But them. you love money, right? I love money. Okay. No question about it. But if a cat ever gave me a problem and I was in a high apartment, I wouldn't have a problem with that cat five minutes later. I'm out. Tough crowd. Rebecca, I look for two things. I look for a product that solves a problem and a mass market product. And I think this meets both of those. Every pet store in America will want this product if you put this on TV. That's what I do, and I'm interested in this deal. So I would give you the $100,000, but I would need 40% of the company. Um, I'd like to hear all the other offers before countering. Who said there's any other offers? And this is where it always gets interesting on Shark Tank. She wants to start a bidding war between the sharks. So she looks to Damon and then Barbara. Um, I was on the fence. I think that that's probably a better offer with a better strategic partner. So I'm going to be out. Okay. Rebecca, I have an offer on the table. Let's get to the bottom line here. No, wait just a minute. Obviously, Kevin's a great guy to put it on TV. The downside to his offer is, is it costs a lot of money to make a TV commercial. It costs a lot of money to buy the airtime. I don't think $100,000 is going to do it. So you really need a partner in the TV business. And my partner in New York owns the biggest TV business called As Seen on TV. So I'll give you the $100,000 for only the 15% if you're willing to take the chance that he buys in on putting it on TV. Did you catch that subtle nuance? She's saying only if her friend likes it versus Harrington, who's saying he wants to do a deal. It's a risk deal. Rebecca, I am the TV expert in the panel here, yes. okay? She has to go to somebody that may like it, may not like it. You're here me, to do whoa, a whoa, deal. Whoa, but let me also say to you, I suspect very much he'll like it because the only criteria he has is proven sales. What a fascinating situation. With certainty, you have to give up 40% equity, or with the risk you've got, you only have to pay 15% equity. What are you going to do? And now the fun begins as Kevin and Barbara face off. Rebecca, I'm ready to do this deal. I'm ready to produce the TV commercial, buy the media, and get this in every pet store in America. I think you're hearing from Barbara. She has to go to somebody who's going to maybe say yes and maybe say no. You're here to do a deal today. I'm ready to do a deal. I think you're a great partner for this, but at 40% for $100,000, I can't do it. It's not in the best interest of Syndicate. I made $100,000 last year alone, and that product wasn't even in retail yet. Give me a counteroffer. 20% at $100,000. You are one shrewd cat. $100,000, 25%. That's it. Um, uh, Kevin, I know that you are the guru for as seen on TV, but I like Barbara. I like the female touch. I love all the products oh. that are but there's always been something about Barbara that you can't turn away from, and it's it's hard. I mean, you I, know what I buy called? into it's trust. Oh, oh, come oh, on. Oh. Oh. Look, you know we can't spend the rest of Rebecca, our lives what are you here. Gonna do? Your cat's going to be dead by the time you get home. I would do Make 20, a I would do twenty percent at a hundred thousand dollars. 
I love you, Barbara, but I would do that. Oh, always about money. Don't do it because I'm going to drop the contingency. Just to oh, knock him out of the can we work together? I know you guys have worked together before. Can we work together? I, I, I think we stand alone on this deal. Oh. I don't think there's a decision to be made right here now. Now I'm saying I'll give you the $100,000 for the 15% with no contingency. So the risk of me producing on TV's on my side. Don't you think I'm going to be motivated to make this happen? I made an offer, Rebecca. You have to make a decision right now. 20%, 100,000. Yes. Okay. All right. And there you have it. Rebecca Riscotti, City Kitty. And it's great when there's bidding wars like that. And that's why we like bringing you periodically our favorite shows, your favorite shows in American television. This is Our American Stories, another Shark Tank story. By the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org for all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org.